this far in the reading of God's holy word. Well, dear saints of God, over the years I've heard self-proclaimed Christians uh, say some pretty shocking, uh, some fairly radical things about their view of the Christian life. Maybe you've heard some of these comments before. Of course I'm saved. I walked the aisle and accepted Jesus into my heart after all. Or maybe something we're more likely to hear in a Reformed context. Someone might say, I'm, I'm so glad for once saved, always saved, because I'm sure not living the faith right now. Or maybe this, sure, Jesus is my Savior, but not my religion. He's not yet my Lord. What do all these statements have in common with one another? Grace, but without commitment. Forgiveness, but without a radical change in the direction of one's life. What is this? This is the watered-down false gospel that is preached by too many pastors in far too many churches in our day and age. In such churches, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace draws thousands on a given Sunday, but it nourishes, it saves no one. Bonhoeffer goes on to describe what he means by this cheap grace, and he says this, cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as it was. Let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself of the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. In summary, Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, forgiveness of sins without personal confession of sin. Cheap grace is grace, he says, without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Well, in the passage we have before us tonight, we see very clearly that the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ directly contradicts, it opposes this false gospel of cheap grace. In fact, in fact as we read this passage, you might have been uh, shocked, taken aback, amazed by just how, how clear, how explicit Christ is about the costly nature of following Him, of being His disciple. Because being a disciple of Christ does involve radical changes in our lives. The Christian life, Jesus says, is all about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following behind our Savior wherever He goes. And there is no other kind of discipleship that could possibly please our Lord Jesus. So as we look at this passage together tonight, I want you to notice that, that if we would follow Him, if we would follow Christ, if we would bear His name before a watching world, we must consider very carefully the kind of commitment 
that's required to follow Him, to be His disciple. I want to notice with you, first of all tonight from this passage, the conditions of discipleship, the conditions of discipleship. If we were to turn back a few chapters in Luke to uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we would be reminded of the fact that, the doc- that Dr. Luke records that Jesus has set His face towards Jerusalem. He's beginning His trek to Mount Calvary. And as we know, uh, there in Jerusalem, He would not meet a coronation party. He would not ascend an earthly throne in Jerusalem, but rather He would be arrested. He would be tried by unjust men. He would be executed like a common criminal. And so, as He he prepares Himself to pay the ultimate cost for our redemption, Jesus here in, in Luke 14 turns to the crowds that are following Him. He looks them square in the eye, as it were, and He calls them to think very carefully, to think long and hard about how far they are willing to go to be His disciples. What kind of companions are they, really? Are they following Jesus purely out of curiosity? Who is this rabbi who's doing all these amazing things? Is their motivation the the hope of uh, personal benefits and perks, maybe a, a more enjoyable and comfortable life? Are they simply going along with the crowd, tapping into a fad, perhaps? But before they commit their lives to being a follower of Jesus, He would have them count the cost of being a follower of a man who is condemned to death, hated, despised by the world. And in verses 26 and 27 in particular, Jesus lays it all on the line for His would-be disciples. And He says that the condition of being a disciple of Jesus is that they must be completely, utterly, fully committed. They must be all in for the sake of Christ, willing to give up their most cherished possessions and comforts and relationships, even life itself, He says. And so unlike the cheap grace preached in so many churches today, Jesus says that discipleship comes with a cost. It makes some serious demands of us. I want you to notice two conditions for discipleship here in this passage. First, in verse 26, Jesus says this to the crowd, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." This is shocking. This is a very serious demand that Jesus puts upon His would-be disciples. So Jesus, being a Hebrew Himself, knows that the Hebrews place a very high cultural value on the family structure. Among the Hebrews, one felt a very strong connection, a very strong allegiance to their family members, and, and how shocking it is then that to such family-oriented people, Jesus should say this, that anyone who does not hate his closest relatives, even their own life, is not worthy, is disqualified from being a true disciple of his. Now, here we might pause and wonder, well, doesn't Jesus call us even to love our enemies? And if that's the case, 
Why would he call us to hate our own family members? Well, it's important for us to understand something about this word hate as it's used in the Bible. Hate is a, is a biblical expression that often means to love less than, to love less than. If we were to turn to Genesis 29, for example, we have the account of, of Jacob and, and Leah and Rachel, and we read there that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, and then later God sees that Leah was hated. And so we know, that, of course, that Jacob didn't despise Leah, but, she, but he loved Rachel more than her. She was loved less, Leah was. And so Jesus' point is that to be a disciple, allegiance to Christ must supersede even allegiance to one's family or to one's own life. Christ Himself is to be the highest object of their loyalty. As one commentator puts it, essentially what Jesus is saying is He's, he's calling for the complete remaking or the reconstructing of one's identity, not along family lines, not along a social status, but oriented to the purpose of God, characterized by faithfulness to the message of Jesus. Jesus said, so great is your love for me to be that all other loves are hatred in comparison. So complete is their commitment to Christ and His kingdom to be that all other allegiances appear as desertion in comparison. So great is the cost and the condition of true discipleship. Then in verse 27, Jesus lists another condition of discipleship. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus says to the crowd as he himself heads to Calvary, disciples of mine must live every moment of life as if they too, like me, are going to be condemned to death by crucifixion caring little for social status or popularity, caring little about accumulating wealth and material things to secure a, a comfortable life, a comfortable future. Jesus says the cross-bearing disciple is someone who willingly gives up all things, as it were, to pursue the greatest prize of identifying with Christ in His suffering. What's the application to us this evening, brothers and sisters, as Christians living in the 21st century after the crucifixion of Christ? Well, you notice here that in these two verses we've just looked at, Jesus' teaching about the conditions of discipleship is addressed to whoever, anyone who would be His disciple. And so what we have here from our Lord is an open invitation for all of us to count the cost of being a true follower of Jesus Christ. I ask you this evening, what are you willing to give up to follow Him? Are you willing to give up any thought or practice that is contrary to Scripture and follow Christ where He leads? Will you renounce your sinful thoughts and desires that though they may be hidden from others, nevertheless frustrate your service to God? Will you give that up? Will you confess your secret sins, the ones that have gone on for so long, perhaps, the, 
that now they seem almost respectable. Will you repent of those sins and disown them, turn to God and be refreshed by Him? Would you relinquish lesser loyalties and possessions, family, homes, successful careers, maybe the, the world's good reputation or a good opinion of you, if you were asked to leave all behind and follow your Savior unto death? Or do those possessions compete with your love for and your service of Christ? J.C. Ryle, a theologian, says this, it does cost something. It costs something to be a real Christian, according to the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome. There are battles to be fought. There are sacrifices to be made. There is an Egypt to be forsaken. There's a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, and a race to be run. Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. It's the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. And so we must consider the cost. We must consider the conditions of discipleship and be willing to follow Christ and give up all things if He calls us to. But secondly, we notice the warnings of discipleship that are here for us. The warnings of discipleship. Jesus warns us that if we fail to count the cost of discipleship before we set out to follow Him, then disaster awaits us. If we start out on the road of the Christian life without truly understanding the kind of commitment that Christ demands of His disciples, then we may later fall away and perish, and our original confession of Jesus will prove to have been a sad fiction all along. And to further illustrate that, to, to further illustrate the conditions of a true discipleship, the kind that perseveres to the very end, that Jesus tells the crowd two parables, twin parables here in verses 28 uh, and following. In verse 28, we find that first parable of our Lord. He asks, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. What Jesus has in view here in his parable is, is a landowner, perhaps a farmer, who sets out to build a tower of sorts, maybe to, to store produce or farming equipment. But he's not wise in his planning. He doesn't look to the future. He doesn't count the cost, whether he has enough resources to finish the project. And so the, the townspeople laugh at him and they mock him. What's the message of our Lord? Those who would confess to love and follow Christ are warned that they must first count the cost to see if they will persevere to the very end. If we would be disciples of Christ, we must take stock of ourselves. We, may, we must take stock of our situation and ask, can I afford to follow Christ my whole life long? Or is my understanding of what it means to be a Christian too shallow, too idealistic, so that I'm like the, the seed sown on the rocky soil in Jesus' parable of Matthew 13, in which we respond 
eagerly, perhaps impetuously, to the Word of God, but we have no root. And when times of trouble and persecution come, we fall away, we wither and die. We must ask ourselves, am I like the rich fool of Luke 12, who, who feigns interest in God but is really concerned about storing up treasures on earth and is not rich towards God? So this parable is, is, is a warning. It's a warning for the half-hearted, lukewarm disciple who's become apathetic, and it calls us to ask ourselves, will we remain true to our confession? Will we finish the tower? Will we remain committed to Christ to the very end of our lives? The second parable of our Lord in verse 31 goes this way, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Very similar uh, message, but a more serious situation. The king must decide whether with his small numbers he can defeat the greater army. And if not, if he has not the resources, then seek for peace. What's the message? We must consider wisely and seriously through, through mature self-probing whether we are committed to following Christ with the resources He has given us. This parable warns us to examine our situation, to count the cost, just as a wise king would not engage in battle, battle with a formidable enemy only if victory were possible or call a truce if defeat is inevitable. So the true Christian disciple must be decisive, must be committed to the course. We're reminded of the fact that the Bible contains many sad accounts of those who failed to count the cost of discipleship only to wither and die in times of trial and trouble. We think of the Israelites in the desert, in the desert of trouble, how often they forgot their God who delivered them, how often they grumbled that they'd rather spend their lives in Egyptian bondage. And we read in the Old Testament and in the New that many of them perished in their sins. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, God was not pleased with most of them. Or we think of the early disciples of Jesus Christ who first heard Jesus' words with great joy. They, they marveled at His miracles, and they followed Him. And then in John 6, we read, they turned back, and they no longer followed Him when they heard that repentance and suffering was also part of following Jesus and I want to address the young people in the congregation, our high school, college age, young adults, career adults, because this pattern shows up all too often in the church among young people like yourselves. Church overseers and members watch as, as children of Christian parents are, are raised in a covenant home with an early knowledge of God's Word and His claim on their lives. We even watch as you come to the, to the front of the sanctuary to give a, a verbal profession of faith, a confession of Christ. But so often we watch and we observe very sadly that when the allurements of this world come along, 
and you're exposed to ungodly attractions and, and faithless ideologies. Too many of you find that, that the cost of obeying Christ is higher than you're willing to pay. And the world's approval and the world's styles and the world's pleasures outweigh your commitment to your Creator, and we watch as you gradually drift away. And we don't see you in worship anymore, and then you're gone entirely. And like salt, Jesus says, that has lost its saltiness, becoming utterly worthless, not even usable in the soil or the manure heap, we, we grieve that so many of you perish because you did not count the cost of discipleship, proving in the end that you were never genuinely committed to Christ in the first place. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' message is difficult to hear, but it's clear. It's clear. He says in verse 33, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Christ wants our full and uncompromised commitment, not half-hearted volunteer work on our own terms when it's convenient for us. Well, there's no question that Jesus' message is difficult to hear. It's convicting. It cuts to the heart. But we must notice finally that Jesus is not discouraging us from genuine discipleship. He's not teaching us that the conditions for discipleship are so impossible that no one could ever genuinely be His disciple, no one could ever genuinely follow Him. He certainly is not telling us to, to pull ourselves up by our proverbial bootstraps and, and, and just do better so that we become preoccupied with our own efforts and our own obedience. No, notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 35, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Only those whose ears, whose minds have been opened to, to God's grace will receive and, and respond to this message of our Lord. The one whom God has provided wisdom and insight into His Word, the ability to latch on to Christ and obey His Word, those are the ones who will be encouraged and strengthened to follow Jesus to the very end. Only those whose hearts have been made receptive by God's grace to Jesus' message will recognize that the Christian call to discipleship, precisely because it's costly, is therefore immensely valuable and meaningful. You see, Jesus wants us to count the cost. He wants us to consider all as loss for the sake of Him so that we can enter the exciting and, and blessed life of true discipleship, which has all sorts of benefits and, and rewards and blessings for us as believers. I want to close uh, this sermon by, by pointing out some of the marvelous benefits, four of them at least, that are portioned for those who have counted the cost of Christian discipleship. And James Boyce does a fine job of pointing these out. First, one of the great blessings of discipleship is that when we, when we confess our sins, when we repent of them, when we surrender them, when we give them up, what do we receive in return? We experience the, the, the forgiveness of our sins. 
the joy of, of living in holiness, the freedom of living our lives in the light of God's truth. That's what uh, the apostle is writing about in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. He says to the church, this is the message we've heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But here's the wonderful blessing, promise that's here for us. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. When we give up our sin, we walk in the light and the joy and the, and the fulfillment of His grace and fellowship. Secondly, when we count the cost and give up our self-righteousness, and that means admitting our, our sin, that we deserve condemnation, what do we get in return? We gain the righteousness of Jesus by faith, and His righteousness is perfect. It's indestructible. It makes us acceptable to God forever. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 8, and 9 rejoices in this. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, as filth in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Paul tried for so long to have that kind of righteousness, but he says, I, I give it up. I count it as rubbish. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on Faith, when we give up our self-righteousness, we receive the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Third, when we count the cost and forsake the world, we may pay a hard price, at least for a time. But we have the blessed promise of 1 John 4 and 5 that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, overcomes the world. And the one who is in you, the one who is in us, is greater, more powerful, more victorious than the one who is in the world. Victory over Satan and all of his allies. And finally, when we give up our all to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, by grace, as His disciples, God gives us all that we need to run the race of the Christian life with endurance. Hebrews 12 calls us to look to the founder and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And there, brothers and sisters, He is interceding for us. What wonderful blessings, what wonderful benefits for those who give their lives in service and discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we admit that we are often hesitant to be all in 
in our service of You. There are so many lesser affections around us that are constantly calling our names, desiring that we we split our allegiance between You and everything else. But Lord, You call us to singleness of heart, diligence, focus, commitment in our discipleship, in our following of You, willing to give up all things if necessary, following You even to death, if that be our call. Father, we pray that You would take away these lesser things which get in the way of our love for You and our service of You. Help us to have our priorities in their proper place. Have them straight. We might seek to glorify and honor You in all that we do, to think how we may represent and honor Christ in all that we think and say and do, in all the affections of our hearts. Oh, Lord, strengthen us in our weakness. Remind us of the wonderful blessings and, and rewards and benefits of serving You, the forgiveness of sin, the joy of living in light of the truth, overcoming the world, being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. As we run this, this race, oh, Lord, please strengthen our, our feeble knees and our slow feet and uh, strengthen us with the promises of Your Word as we seek to fulfill Your call to bear our cross and to follow You as Your disciples. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.